Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by the Medical Indemnity Protection Society, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. Hi everybody, welcome to the timeout. My name's Ganisht and I'm joined today by Dr. Christine Cuthbertson, general surgeon based in Bendigo, and a senior lecturer at Monash University, having done a PhD in surgery in the past and is now pursuing a master's of surgical education. Quite remarkably, Dr. Cuthbertson has also volunteered as a surgeon in Nepal for two years and is a proud mama of three, a wealth of stories that we can't wait to uncover for you today. Welcome to the show, Chris, and thanks for being here. Hello, Ganesh, nice to be here. So let's start with your specialty. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? What do you do exactly? Okay, so I'm a non-specialized general surgeon. Um, I work in a regional area and I, through my career, have worked quite generally covering things like uh, gynecology and urology as well. Um, so I work both in Bendigo and uh, Achuka. I do, that, that's not to say that I don't have areas of interest. So I tend to work in um, predominantly in emergency surgery, breast, uh, endocrine and thyroid surgery, and uh, pelvic floor disorders, um, which is if you look at subspecialty interests, those tend to cross a few borders. Um, and I think that's the advantage of working in a place where you're not committed to being a specialist in a particular type of area that you can deal with what's required in the area that you work. Yeah. And you've mentioned as well this, um, this propensity to keep generalism in surgery, as you've um, quoted. Can you tell us yeah. a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think there's a movement, um, particularly in uh, city practices, to label yourself as a particular type of surgeon with this particular group of specialty interests. Um, and so we can see that in general surgery, you know, colorectal surgeon or breast surgeon or, or whatever. Um, and it's, it's a little limiting in that, particularly if we work outside the city where there's a lot of different people with different competition, um, different areas have different requirements from what they need from their surgeon. For example, I work in Bendigo and I've ended up doing a lot more breast and thyroid surgery because that was the need that they had there. I also picked up um, an interest in pelvic floor colorectal um, disorders because there wasn't anybody who was particularly interested in doing that at that time. Um, and those, those specialties don't normally cross. When I work in Echuca, which is a much smaller hospital, I do a lot more skin cancer. Um, that's something that in, in towns might be taken up by plastic surgeons, but uh, there's, there's very little plastic surgeon cover in Echuca. And so I'll do reasonably complex skin excisions, um, although not doing a lot of the other stuff that, that plastic surgeons do, but I do do some hand surgery and things that I might not have the opportunity to do in Melbourne. Now, if I had come out of my training and decided I was going to be an X version of surgeon, surgeon with these sort of training skills, then I might not have learned the um, skills or techniques or surgery or operations in order to be able to deal with a diverse, diverse group of procedures like this. Um, and I think that particularly in our regional workforce, we need to be able to find a way to maintain that 
flexibility um, in order to serve the people where we work. Um, they need different things from us depending on where we work. Yeah, and we will get back to how you came to believe you know, these things about keeping to the generalism in surgery as well as your pathway a bit later today. Yep. Um, but for now, we'll move to some warm-up questions that I think we might enjoy. Um, do you have a favourite animal, Chris? Uh, I don't. I don't think I have a particular favourite animal, but I have a, 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 as in breed or type of animal. But I do have a favourite particular uh, animal in my. You know, I have a dog who lives in my house. Yeah. Her name is Foxy. Um, she's a rescue animal, and I. We actually bought her when I passed my exam in surgery as sort of a prize for. For yeah. having got through all of that um, and she's been with us for quite a while and she's got quite a big personality uh, if anybody comes to the door later on you'll be able to hear her barking to let us know that they're there and protecting us from from the postman yeah well i'm sure we're all excited to feature foxy on the show today um so fingers crossed um <laughs> next question what's your favorite activity for the whole family uh we Oh, that's tricky. Uh, we spend a lot of time when we're relaxing, we'll um, uh, go to the beach and hang out as a family, um, swimming, playing in that way. Um, uh, spending time together outside is, is a fairly reasonable thing that we enjoy. Um, we also play a lot of board games. Uh, we got into that. We lived overseas where there was a lot less places to go out of an evening and we it's a great community builder to play board games um so we do still do that as a family okay now tell me what comes to your mind in three words or less when i mention the following destinations monash university my the beginning of it all i like that and next nepal beautiful difficult challenging wow which we will uncover a bit later today. And the last, Bendigo. Wonderful community. I'm sure everyone's very happy to hear that. Shout out to Bendigo in this episode. Now, Chris, what does a typical day in your life look like? Uh, I'm, I have a fairly uh, mixed practice in that I do different things on different days. Uh, so... For example, today I have some time which is um, my research desk time in the morning. Um, I've actually just driven back from Machuca, where I was on call over the weekend. And then this afternoon I will see patients in my private rooms. Um, so most of my days have, have a reasonably early start. We're not so bad in Bendigo as we might be in some of the bigger hospitals. Uh, we start around 7.38. Um, I might have... Uh, surgical theatre or endoscopy in the morning, maybe some clinic in the afternoon. Um, and those are mixed through the week. Uh, I do have a day where I spend the whole day in the university at um, Monash Rural Health. Um, and that's focused a lot more on uh, working with HMOs about helping them get some education experience and learning um, and also teaching the medical students directly and organising their syllabus in surgery. Yeah, something that we've understood you're quite passionate about, educating the next um, generation of surgeons. Yeah, I think it's it's a really enjoyable thing to do. I, I got to a point uh, after I'd finished my fellowship where I realised that I didn't want to be, I didn't want the main thing that I could say about my life to be that I filled a space in the, in the schedule, uh, that I did my job on the day it was allocated to me, uh, that I wanted to have something that would move on from there that I could make the 
a broader area of surgery better. Uh, and education is one of the ways we can do that. Um, we can, anything that I can do to make other surgeons or other doctors better at what they do um, means that, you know, that's an impact that reaches a lot further than what I do for my patients on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah. And the students you're teaching are undoubtedly very lucky to have you, Chris. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> now, in terms of the last warm-up question, are you listening to or reading anything at the moment that you'd recommend to our listeners? Um, yeah, so I'm I'm reading an, an old favourite of mine, which is the uh, Assassin's Apprentice series by Robin Hobb. Um, I haven't read it for years and years and years, um, but I got back into it trying to convince one of my children to start reading it. Um, and we're actually now reading it in tandem. I think I'm speeding through it a lot quicker than he is, but um, we're talking about it as we go and I'm very much enjoying that. Yeah. And do you have any other interests in terms of reading? Uh, yeah, well, I um, in since lockdown, we've uh, created amongst my friends a, a, um, a book group, a Zoom book group, um, which is a different way to run a book group because, you know, you can have people from Sydney and all over Australia um, yeah. join up with you. So we've got people from at least three different towns. Um, and so we read varied suggestions through that. Um, I read, spend half to, my reading life really reflects what my work life is like. On days that I'm really busy, I'm reading trashy crime or things that are quite easy to read. Um, and days where things are a bit more quiet, then I'm reading more in-depth um, things that I have to think about uh, so we'll try and keep it as varied as I can. Well, that's a fantastic suggestion um, for people looking for lockdown hobbies to dabble. <laughs> um, okay. Now let's start to get to know Chris a little bit more now. Sure. About your childhood. Where were you born and where did you grow up? I was born in Melbourne and I grew up in uh, suburban Melbourne, north northern suburbs. What's well, now really a suburb, but it's a town called Yarrambat. At that time, it was a bit country lanes and walk to school sort of place. Yeah. Um, so I grew up there um, and I ended up in high school at McRob in town, which is a selective public school, um, yeah. and got into medicine at Monash and went from there. Yeah. And any memories from those days that come back to you these days? Uh, so, so many memories. I grew up, uh, the school I went to when I was in primary school was, was a Montessori school, which is a really adaptive form of education where it sort of tries to uh, trigger what you're interested in at the time. And we were really encouraged to explore really broad, different topics, depending on what interests us. And um, although all of that has developed a lot, but at that stage, it was a real hippie area with everybody with really strange names um, <laughs> And, um, and we really made a lot of mess and we got dirty and we built things and we dug holes and all that sort of stuff. And it's a, it's a great, great memory of childhood to do that. I'm also identical twin. So I spent a lot of time in that, in that childhood, hanging out with my sister and doing things together with her. Um, so she's always there as a part of that, that growing up phase and, and us against the world sort of experience. Yeah, love that, especially as you embarked on um, the journey that brought you to where you are today, which yeah. does make me think, Chris, um, was there anything you mentioned that, you know, doing everything as part of school curriculum, but is there anything from back then you think that influences you to this day in terms of skills, perhaps? Um, 
I, I, that's a really tricky question, not one I've thought about very much. Um, I think I grew up a Christian and I think that that's really still influences me today in um, it makes me want to try and treat everybody with respect as much as I possibly can. Um, and it, I've distilled, a, it, that has affected what I've ended up doing in medicine quite a lot um, because my focus is always to try and care for and look after people as if it's somebody that I really love, um, yeah. no matter what I do. Uh, and and there's no question that generally I'm, I'm more introverted, but when I'm at work, I'm much more about trying to form real connections with people um, and figure out where they are so that I can serve them better. And I think all of that ties together in, in my working life um, and where I've ended up. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's a page that we can definitely take out of the book in terms of building connections with the people around us. At that time, while growing up, was there any indication that you'd get into medicine? Um, I had a sort of fleeting idea when I was young about being a doctor, like, you know, in five, six, that sort of age group. Uh, I think it related to, I actually saw, saw somebody have a, um, a, a bad, like a collapse at my house and the ambulance came. And that sort of made me think that being a doctor would be a good thing to do to look after this person who'd been a family friend. Um, but for many years, I, I wasn't that interested after that. So I'm not sure that it, um, it wasn't ever something that I, I clung to my whole life that I was always going to be a doctor, um, yeah. more something that I came back to once I realised what my skills and um, approach to life were and that it would be a reasonable fit. Yeah, and we all come in with our different um, stories of how we got into medicine. As you mentioned, some people knew from the first animal they took care of, you know what, I wanted to take care of. And some people don't find out until, you know, end of university when they want to choose. And um, as some of us would relate to, even in medicine, you still don't know where you want to get into. So the uncertainty is part of the process, I feel. Um, and so- I think it's, it's useful to keep, open to opportunities and so uh, while it's really exciting for some people to know where they want to be and what they want to do and drive after that with a goal um, my course through life or the way I rephrase it when I'm looking back on it I'm not sure that that really was my course but is that I, I wait to see what opportunities and choose the best thing at a particular time uh, and when it came up to the end of year 12 and I was trying to figure out what course to do, I looked at all of the ones available and realised that medicine was one that would challenge me and that I'd get some personal reward from and that I could um, be focused on others rather than focused on myself. Um, and, and for that reason, it won out at the time. But I could have easily made a different decision and I'm sure I would have ended up in a rewarding place. Um, I'm lucky, like I absolutely love what I do. Um, I'm not convinced that if I had have chosen something else, I wouldn't love that just as much. Yeah, I'm totally reasonable, which is, I suppose, how um, you ended up at Monash Medical School. And can you tell us about that selection process for you, especially coming from the northern suburbs and considering Monash Uni? Uh, yeah, well, the at the time, um, it was really just a process of going through the university selection. Uh, I strangely had not even considered that leaving the state was a reasonable thing so it was really at that stage of choice between Melbourne and Monash and at that time in the early 90s um, Melbourne was seen as a very traditional course 
um, with not much flexibility. Um, and Monash was trying new new methods of selection and new methods of teaching and had a focus on um, humanism. And so I ranked Monash higher and got in. Um, the, however, the, the selection at that stage was still very conservative. Like it was just basically mark, based on marks, although they were bringing in interviews um, in that phase to try and figure out if that would make a difference to their selection process. Um, so getting into the course was really old school. Um, but that I chose Monash because I thought it would be more flexible at that time. Yeah. Now let's take a trip down memory lane. What are some of the highlights you remember from those days at medical school? Uh, I think there's a whole lot of highlights of um, university generally, meeting a whole bunch of new people and becoming an adult in your own right. Um, yeah. I was lucky enough to still live at home. I had a good relationship with my parents and they supported me financially. So um, I didn't have to struggle with some of that stuff that I see people struggle or saw people around me struggling with. Um, and I was able to settle in and enjoy um, the course, um, there was, uh, there's just so much breadth in learning me medicine. So the, you know, the really complicated, um, systems information physiology that you have to come to terms with the neatness of anatomy, um, the, the broadness of like, uh, GP skills, communication skills, trying to figure out how to, uh, appropriately ask questions, um, not not to reduce your own biases, all of that sort of information. So there's so many different facets of what we were learning, both the you know physics science based stuff that I had enjoyed, but also the really broad, more um, communication, humanities, right brain sort of stuff. Um, and and I was entranced. Medicine is just so much, so many different things, and so many different focuses um, that you have to be able to master. Um, or you know, at least approach. And, and it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. It almost subconsciously, it encourages this whole new manner of thinking where mm. at some point you, you surprise yourself by thinking, oh, wow, I am responsible for taking care of people now. And that requires um, a certain mindset as well. Um, and I think that we get, we get boxed in when we're, when we're in high school and we say, well, I'm a science person. Like I did two maths and I did two science. And so therefore I was a science person. Right. Um, but medicine is so much broader than that with so much gray in it um, that the idea of being able to learn a syllabus to the end. And that's, that's how you prove that you're smart um, in medicine. That's not true. That's not how you prove you're smart. You prove you're smart by flexibly adapting to different situations and becoming master of a lot of different skills. Um, and um, and it, 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 feel, it takes a long time to get adjusted to that, that that's, that's what we want out of ourselves. And it's about, you know, because it, it's different to what we're taught when we're trying to chase that number in, in high school. Yeah, yeah. And that in itself is quite the big challenge, mastering all those things that are um, so new at that time. Did mm -hmm. you think you had any other challenges while in medical school um, that you overcame? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I met my husband and got married in medical school. So that was, I mean, yeah. I, I, in retrospect, that was a very good decision. We're still together now, 25 years later. But, um, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a time of no change. So we bought a house. We moved in together. Um, we struggled financially a lot while because he was, he was working and supporting me um, through that time. Um, yeah. But yeah, so um, I don't, uh, my life was actually pretty good. Like I've, I've had a really breezy life in terms of um, 
external stuff, which has allowed me to really focus on 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 medicine. Yeah, especially with um, creating your own family at that time while managing this curriculum that we have. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have any advice for the people who might be going through that at the at the moment? Med school or get it relationships. Yeah, med school and relationships, possibly even creating their own families. What can help them? Do you think? Oh, I have a lot. I mean, I spend a lot of time with med students, and I have some broad sorts of advice that I, I I like to focus on. Firstly, I think that we we come out of high school with the idea that we can learn the entire box of the subject, um, and we really have to adjust to the idea that this is the first step in a really long career, and you won't become expert in anything for years and years, even if you do become expert in something, um, much more likely we're going to have a broad understanding of a variety of topics. Um, and I think that at some point you have to make that tra- transition to understanding that you're, you're you know, touching on lots of different topics rather than mastering any of them. Um, and that's, that's a difficult transition for most people to make. The second thing is I think that we spend a lot uh, – and I say we, because this is my experience of being a med student, but it's also what I see in med students nowadays. Um, and I know that was a long time ago, but um, the we want to spend a lot of time knowing. So the idea of having to be responsible um, creates this pressure that we have to know everything, that if we don't know everything, we might make mistakes. And I think that that can cut down um your experience of life I think what is actually genuinely more important as a doctor is that you're a person who's smart enough to react to situations and to deal with deal with people who are in difficult places um, so all of the things that make you you like your relationships outside uh, like your church you might be involved with or like your sporting group or any of those things are really vital to making you into a good doctor um, and, and it's really dangerous if you start to give that up um, through my experience and other people's experience, I know that um, the added pressure of moving back and forth to med school, so from a regional rotation, driving back and forth to Melbourne, um, for example, mm-hmm. is an extra pressure. And I think people discount that. They're young and they're fit and they think that that's, that's a reasonable thing to do. But if you're driving back and forth or if you've got stress in your life or you've got mental illness or you've got any of those things, it makes your capacity to do anything else smaller. Um, and, and I think we're smart enough to consciously reduce what we do if we're in difficult situations like that or if we've got extra pressure on our plate or if we have to work to maintain our finances. I mean, it's easy for me to say I found med school really enjoyable and I got to study as I liked and I got to do, you know, go out with my friends on the weekend. But I didn't, I was financially supported both by my parents and my husband through, through med school and I was able to do the whole thing in one brick and I didn't have to work on summer holidays if I didn't want to. Um, so it was a completely different experience for me in terms of flexibility than what it is for some people who, who don't have that freedom. Um, and, and I think at some point you just have to accept that if you have to do all that stuff, then you don't have as much time to spend on the med school. Um, yeah. And, and it doesn't mean that you'll come out the end a lesser doctor because you'll have a different life experience. And that, that actually makes it easier to relate to people and to understand where they are. And that, that is a skill that's really hard to learn from books or from time spent being pampered and looked after as a, you know, uh, a supported person going through school. Absolutely. Um, I think I fully agree with the notion of not discrediting the human that is behind the, you know, the medical community. Um, and as a previous guest on the show has mentioned the fact that 
they were involved in so many jobs and, and groups and extracurricular activities, eventually prepared them to handle the workload that medicine was throwing at them. Um, mm. Recognizing that and accepting that, I think, is part of the process. Mm. Now, if we talk about medical school where you were exposed to all of those varying disciplines that we spoke about, you know, that explosion of knowledge, um, did surgery come into your mind at that time? No, I, surgery was never interesting to me. Um, there are a couple of factors in that. Um, the people who walked in and said they wanted to do surgery were the um, football playing private school boys generally. Yeah. Um, and, and that's a stereotype, but that's, there was a big group of those those people um, fit that stereotype. Um, and so that didn't feel like me. I didn't, and, and I guess we can see that nowadays when we understand about um, bias in that if you look at a group of people and you say, do I fit in that group? Am I one of those people? Yeah. Um, uh, if you're not, if you don't look anything like the people who want to be in that group, then it, it doesn't, it doesn't even consider, it doesn't make you consider that that's a reasonable place for you to be. Um, the second part about it is that I think that we treat, we teach surgery poorly. Um, so generally when we um, teach a subject, we simplify it in order to make it easy to conceptualize. And part of the beauty that I enjoy now in surgery, there's a couple of things. Firstly, is that you generally make people better. Um, you can cure people, which is one of the reasons I love surgery. I love to be able to have somebody come back and say, hi, I feel so much better. Great, I'll discharge you. I never need to see you again. Like that's that's incredibly rewarding yeah. um, and is undervalued when you're a med student because you don't get to experience that interaction with um, patients in the same way because it's really cross-sectional. And the second thing is that we, when we oversimplify things, the, the depth of surgery is in the fact that there are actually no clear answers. A lot of what we do is gray. It's based on... Um, poor evidence or evidence that we can never have because we don't have the same sort of randomized control trials in surgery. It's based on knowing what a fairly simple best, best approach or best practice is, fitting that to the patient and then dealing with anything and then knowing that the outcome of that will be vastly different for each patient, even if it feels like it all went the same. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really not solid. It's it's nebulous and it moves. So you do exactly the same thing and you come up with a different outcome or you come up with a complication that you didn't expect and you still have to deal with it. So there's a lot more agility to surgery than what we can possibly teach in medical school. And I got the impression that medical school teaching on surgery is really dumb. Like hole in tube, fixed tube, put tube together. Oh, fixed, bye. You know, um, and it's not like that. Um, <laughs> And, and it was only once I got into the world of working with that that I realised that it, it, there's so much more grey and there's so much more um, having to be across the things we know, the things we think we know, um, the things that make sense for this person and what this person would prioritise and using that information to come up with decisions and make um, difficult technical decisions on the spot when you, you have nobody to ask. In a, you, know, you don't know in an operation whether going this way or that way is going to make much of a difference. Yeah. Um, and, but you still have to decide. And if you get it wrong, you still have to back yourself and say, well, I made a bad decision and it ended up like this. And now here's what I'm going to do about it. And that's something that doesn't or didn't come across to me when people were teaching me surgery. Um, so I thought that I wanted to do things that um, 
you know, basically people sit around talking about and don't know very many answers in retrospect, things like surgical oncology, oh, sorry, oncology or, or yeah. um, physician training where people, it's very cerebral and people talk about the right thing to do and they talk about 17 different papers and that felt smart to me. Yeah. Um, uh, it's a different sort of, like it is smart, it's a different sort of smart, but I didn't see that in surgery. Yeah, and you're right by touching on the point that it's not uncommon for people to be dissuaded from pursuing a path in surgery in medical school because we are exposed to this little glimpse of it. And oftentimes the the challenges of surgery as a career, um, you know, overshadow the benefits that you could possibly get, you know, the, the working hours, the prospects of having family, some myths in there as well. Um, but for those people who maybe daunted by the idea of surgery as a career in medical school what would you tell them i think that our perception there's a whole lot of um perceptions or rumors or you know uh, generalizations that go about surgery and um it's it only shows one side the yeah. idea that somehow surgery is a bad lifestyle but physicians uh is a better lifestyle for example it it's patently false. Um, for example, obstetricians, gynecologists have much worse lifestyles than surgeons do. Their, their restrictions are caught up on some decision that somebody made nine months ago. Um, and, and, you know, they can see six months in advance how terrible their life is going to be in November, right? Um, and if something goes wrong, they really have to be there five minutes ago, not in an hour and a half like we do. Um, so, but that that rumor or that perception doesn't come through in real life. So we feel that surgery is a terrible life and, and other careers are better. Um, and I think, I mean, some of that is, is based on uh, the things that we can see. We see that surgical registrars are pushing around everywhere and they're working late hours. We can see that they start early and that seems like the worst thing in the world. When I started working, I realized that working at night for me is the worst, much worse than getting up early and working in the morning. And then equally, now I don't have to be at work before 8, 8.30. So it's not an early start for me in this place. Um, there's a lot more flexibility when you get out the end. And we know from evidence that there's a lot of careers where people leave clinical practice fairly early in their careers. So, for example, emergency medicine, um, the consultants tend to move into more administrative roles in their 40s, yeah. um, Whereas surgeons maintain clinical practice for surprisingly long and our actual retirement age is much higher mm. than 65 because people persist in the job because they enjoy it so much. It's not because they're caught. It's because we actually genuinely enjoy the clinical work we do. Um, and, and that side of surgery, that, that people enjoy the job for a really long time, they enjoy it more as they get older, the, job, the, the experience becomes better as you become more experienced at it. All of that stuff is hidden when you're looking at it from the outside. I have med students talk to me all the time saying, I can't, I, I couldn't, I was completely surprised when I went on a surgical ward round that the surgeons were really good at talking to the patients. It's like <laughs> yeah. our perceptions of what surgery is paint it before we even get there. Um, so we don't even see it in a fair light. Yeah. And a mentor of mine um, was talking about how if you want to find out about what it is, for example, to have a family in surgery, don't talk to the people who haven't done it. Talk to the people who have done it, who will give yeah. you the actual perception of what it is. So I think it's surrounding ourselves with 
good sources of information about the reality of what we're going into. Yeah, but I, I mean, I would argue that that's, there, there's this idea that you should choose the lifestyle that you want and pick the career that's most likely to let you get it. And, mm. and, and I, I have a problem with that. I think that there are heaps of times when I was training where I had to not be available and I still do like I'm not available for school productions or whatever. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not unique to surgery. Like it does happen in other fields, but the thing that I could always say when my kid was sick or whatever, and I had to go to work is that, you know, I'm going to do something that I think I'm really good at, that I make a difference and gives me a lot, lot of satisfaction. It's, it wasn't because I chose some second rate career that I thought would have a better lifestyle um, that I, I never had to say, hi, I'm, I'm leaving you to do some compromise job that I chose because I thought I would never put me in this position. Um, so I think the first thing you have to choose is when you're thinking about careers is what lights you up? What, what do you feel that you really um, want to do that you feel is meaningful? Because you will always, and medicine is not a forgiving career. Um, you will have to not be at things uh, whatever they are, friends, family, parents. Um, and it, at that point, you need to say that what you have to go and do is meaningful to you, is something that you genuinely believe in. So that should yeah. be your first thing. And then the second thing is that you can totally restrict what you do or change what you do. You don't have to get onto the rat race. There's a lot of surgeons out there that work a couple of days a week, um, but nobody hears from them because they don't work at the centers of excellence and they don't they're not transplant surgeons and those the the people who are working at those really big centers with lots of um uh, competition they talk about what they do as if it's a goal as if it's a prize because it's a way of justifying it to themselves as much as anything um but that's that doesn't have to be what it is like yeah. it's incredibly rewarding to um live in a, work in a town where I don't have to do anything that particularly taxes my brain when I'm up in Echuca and they love that I come there and patients are really enjoy, find it amazing that, you know, we will come up there and work for them and not make them drive to see us. And that that is a different experience to, work, you know, proving how clever I am all the time. Yeah, and it's so refreshing to hear these alternate um, perceptions of what a career in surgery should look like or not. Um, now, in terms of uh, last question about the medical school days, in your, we gather that you do interact with a lot of medical students at the moment. Yep. Um, is there anything that you know you feel we do quite well, or things that we can could improve on these days? Med students, or when we're teaching med students, <laughs> um, med um, students who are listening to this, perhaps. What yeah, I think I think that there's there's a couple of things that all med students do better to learn as quickly as they can. Uh, one is that medical school is the start of your career. You're working in the workplace. Um, for, for us, um, the fact that you're a medical student doesn't, doesn't appear as important as it does, I think, to the medical student themselves. Um, so the people that you interact with will be your employers. They'll be the people who choose your job in the future. They, you know, you are just as much of a cog in the environment as everybody else is doing their bit. It's not like one day you get qualified and suddenly you have something to say or something to do. Um, the role of med students. Um, so for example, when we don't have med students over the weekend, over the summer holidays in the ward rounds, the ward rounds go a heap slower because the med students have a role in that position, right? 
um, they're not a drain on the society, they actually work. And we see that a lot more formalized in the US, but it does work here too. Um, and, uh, and running alongside that, this is the rest of your life. You should start doing things that you enjoy. You should start um, taking extra opportunities as they come up. You should um, talk to people about things that you're interested in. You should take advantage of the, um, the people who are wanting to teach you something and ask them all the questions that you have on that topic. Um, there's this fear that comes from future selection. Um, yeah. Whereas um, what you really are in med students is you are served experts in every subject regularly. Um, and you, it's much harder to get that sort of input when you're a, a clinician or when you're an HMO and you're trying to learn how to treat whatever it is. Um, in med, when you're in med school, you've got the opportunity to find out all that stuff and nobody cares because that's what you're there for. That's your job to find out as much of the stuff that you don't know as possible. Um, yeah. If it may, doesn't make sense to you, we'll explain it to you again. Um, and so you've got to take advantage of those opportunities. Yeah. And as you're talking, we're all feeling this collective sigh of yes this is what we're doing so thanks for sharing those words the uh, final thing i will say yeah. is that for for whatever reason where you 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 guys are selected as you are empirically smart people and spend a lot of time telling me or the ones that i deal with uh that you're nervous that you don't know the answer or that you will look stupid like it's it's insane. It's like an Olympian sitting there go, I'm worried that you will think I'm not fit. That's just, <laughs> um, it, it's just this fear gets in the way of the whole experience of med, student, med school um, when you've got, you've got these opportunities um, and you're letting the imposter in your brain or the, the bad um, demon on your shoulder um, stop you from getting the most out of the experience. Um, and none and you know it's not like we're so magic we've just got an extra 20 years experience like we know exactly what it feels like to worry about how you appear um but nevertheless you, you got to have the maturity to get beyond that and say well that may be true but i don't care that i look stupid because i really need to know the answer to this question or whatever it is or i really need to engage with this person because one day they'll be employing me or yeah. i really want do want to learn how to suture this wound or whatever it is so try and get beyond the fear <laughs> we need those reassurances from around and today this was a good piece of advice perhaps this was another reminder on that <laughs> um, now if we move to some of your early career days after medical school um well yeah they said you've been at the austin as an intern and then no i was at um sorry i was i out. moved around a fair bit i started at box hill yeah um I went to Box Hill because I wanted to. I thought I wanted to be a GP, basically, or perhaps a physician. Yeah. Um, and I, one of the early rotations I did was surgery, and I really enjoyed that. And that was really at that stage, Box Hill didn't have a surgical training program, so mm. um, I had to make a decision whether I would stay at Box Hill for my HMO years um, and then try and get onto surgical training. Um, or I could go to a more traditional uh, surgical training ground. Um, and I did apply some other places, but I ended up staying at Box Hill for my entire pre-surgical training. Yeah. Um, because it, you know, and it was a good decision in retrospect because I had really good relationships with the people that I worked with. Like I knew the surgeons very well. They all knew who I was. Um, I had the opportunity to ask lots of questions. I 
they were all very excited that I wanted to do surgery. And so I got some opportunities. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't perfect. Like there was different opportunities I could have got at a bigger hospital, but it certainly didn't, you know, it, it didn't do me any damage, I don't think. Um, I then worked at Monash's for a year as a non-training registrar um, before starting my surgical training at Austin. Okay, right. Now, what were, what did it for you in terms of being attracted to surgery then? Uh, I, I was lucky enough to have a rotation uh, with an excellent registrar who was friendly and engaging and encouraging and uh, four consultants who were interested and able to talk to me and um, and I could see the difference that we were making. I could see how interesting it was, what they were doing. Um, and, you know, I just really enjoy the term. I think if, I'm not sure if I had have done another rotation with another group that I would have had that same experience. It was genuinely one of the most positive places that I've worked. Um, and the the all of the bosses and and the registrar acted as a mentor to me in that situation and made it seem like a really good thing to do which was an accurate representation of my experience of surgery subsequent to that um that was combined with the fact that um i went on a when i was on my medical round uh, my husband told me that i was much less happy so i needed him to point out to me that i was when I was doing surgery, I was coming home excited and um, telling him about everything that I'd done and, you know, really wanting to share my day. And when I was doing my physician rounds, I was coming home and crawling into the corner and falling asleep and, you know, very cranky. Um, so he was able to see that it, there was a clear difference in my enjoyment and my how much reward I was getting out of the day when I was doing surgery. And that was the other thing that helped me make the decision that, that surgery, I should pursue surgery. Yeah, and that's a useful thing, um, checking in with the people closest to you um, to get an idea of, you know, how you might be yourself um, in the field that you're in. Now, you also mentioned your husband at this point, which is something I was thinking about. At that stage, um, you there would be several things that would be driving your decision making. Um, mm-hmm. What were those priorities in those early career days for you in terms of balancing your family and your career? Well, I mean, I think we'd been married by, th- um, when I was an intern, we'd been married three years and um, we made our decisions together. So decisions about my career, like he was working, um, but decisions, big ones about what should I do, um, we discussed them together. And so um, he got an impact as much as me. <clears throat> and, you know, it was no secret that there was a difference in how long it would take to get me through training or what my lifestyle might be like, but we... Um, you know, he's he having him um, a very close friend effectively tell me that you know he really wanted me to have an enjoyable life as opposed to a life where I hated it <laughs> was you know that it made it an easy decision to to go through um, and you know I had lots of ups and downs in my training and and choices that we made about you know. Um, where I would work and what sort of rotations I would do and whether I'd do a research degree and all those sorts of things. And, and he was there helping me with those decisions. And, and I don't think anybody makes decisions in isolation or I think that I don't understand those relationships. Um, I think everybody has people in their family that care about them, um, friends who say, 
you know, yeah, that's a reasonable thing or that doesn't seem like it works for you or what are you talking about? That's a dumb thing to do. And who is this guy you're going out with? You know, that sort of stuff. And, yeah. um, and you've you got you to gotta use your village to make, help you make those decisions. Yeah, which is um, how I'm also thinking about this next point of, um, so after your training and you set um, your surgical training years at the Austin, um, once qualified, you then made the move to Nepal Let's talk yes. about that. How did that come about? Um, the last couple of years of my training, I worked at the Northern Hospital, which is an outreach of, of Austin. And uh, there's two surgeons there who'd worked in a hospital in Nepal. Um, and I had, earlier on when I'd chosen to do surgery or medicine, um, I'd been on our... Um, I'd been talking to a lot of guys throughout through our church who who really had decided to go overseas and help people and that sort of thing and I was trapped because I was in med school and it was going to take me six years and mm. and I felt that I was left behind on all of those exciting things that they were choosing to do so it had always been something that I wanted to do to go and do something yeah. um, in the third world or the developing world um, so anyway these guys had both worked at the same hospital in Nepal which is fun is in Tansen. Um, there's a lot of Australians who go and work in this particular hospital. Mm. Um, and, and so when they got the, um, the idea that I was working with them, they spent a lot of time talking me into it, basically. Um, and there was, there was more to it than that, but it was something that we'd always wanted to do. Um, my husband didn't want to um, stay, like we had kids at that stage. My husband didn't want to go straight into um, working hard to try and compete for a place um he wanted to have something that was different yeah. um I, he, he actually was imagining a year off and not doing anything at all and i couldn't even come to that and so yeah. i convinced him that doing going to a volunteering in a hospital was the same thing um and so we went and went to nepal with the kids <clears throat> um the we had planned to be there for six months just as a trial to see if we liked it and we ended up staying for two years because we found it incredibly rewarding and a completely different lifestyle and something that we really enjoyed um uh he as a, he was an engineer or he is an engineer and he he got involved in a lot of um project managing structural engineering projects yeah. um and so again as a volunteer um and and that was, you know, rewarding for him because it, it's it's just amazing how much how much more grassroots you can be, how much you, how many people you can impact by the small decisions you make over there, um, and so it's completely different to working uh, to make money over here. Um, yeah, it, it feels different. Yeah, and that's why we're so excited to have you on the show today to discuss all these questions that we have about considering volunteer work. Um, and so one of the first things about that for us is when's, when's a good time to do it? When are you qualified enough to be able to do it? Um, it really depends on what sort of volunteer work you want to do. So they all have different requirements. For, to become a surgeon and work as a surgeon, you need to be qualified as a surgeon. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, I needed to be finished my surgical training in order to go and work as a surgeon. Anybody who's in their registrar training or their junior resident training um, they are considered a doctor, qualified as a doctor, but with no further qualifications, no matter how much experience they've had. Um, and so um, different uh, countries are different, but generally um, they expect you to have at least the qualifications that they're, they don't think that 
we're automatically better because we're from someone else, somewhere else. So, and that's respectful. Um, so in order to get registration, I need to be qualified as a surgeon. However, if you want to do public health type roles, immunisation, those sorts of things, mm. um, they do often require a bigger com time commitment. So you need to commit to 12 months up front. And that's perfectly reasonable to do um, when you've got your ticket as a fully qualified doctor. So after your intern year, um, most places would accept you with that level of qualifications to do what's basically a public health role. Yeah. Um, you know, health checks, those sorts of things. And that's, that's a, there's a different type of experience, but it's, you know, um, also very valuable. Um, and things like MSF run programs through that. MSF can run, um, surgical rotations tend to be shorter because they have harder time getting surgeons for long periods. And plus their need for actual surgeons for, for long periods, it's not as high because there tends to be an acute disaster sort of situation. Whereas long-term primary healthcare is really common requirement. So, um, so things that you can do out of med school is, is, is quite flexible. There's a lot of opportunities for that. Um, there's lots of different ways that you can volunteer overseas. Um, it's, it, it's a really good experience to have. It opens up totally different planes um, from, from, different, um, from where you would be before. It shows you a different side of healthcare. Um, I was, you know, naively believe that this version of healthcare that we have here is normal, but having a government that pays for your healthcare and that you can have anything at any expense is not at all normal. That's completely bizarre in terms of the rest of the world. Um, and we think about it because that's what a lot of developed countries do, but most countries don't do that. Most countries, you have to pay for your own healthcare and it changes the dynamics of how it works, um, what decisions people make. Um, yeah. Uh, and uh, and what treatments you would offer them like we increasingly futile treatments are less likely to be offered in a situation where a patient has to pay for themselves for example um, things palliative treatments have a completely different scope in a place where you have to pay for your own treatment particularly if it's a poor nation yeah. um, uh, like for example where i worked um the we became a really so the hospital I worked in was a Christian hospital and it was funded at least partially by donations from overseas um, people. And so that money they were able to use for healthcare for people who couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, and so we basically had a pseudo public system to a degree. Um, and we ended up dealing with a lot. We had a really, really big burns unit. We had the third biggest we're in a rural town, right? Mm. And we had the third biggest burns unit in the whole of Nepal, just because burns are really expensive to look after. Um, people stay in for a long time. They have a lot of procedures um, and they're much more likely to happen in poorer groups um, because, you know, you're in a house with a cook fire in the middle of it and, you know, you, you're cooking animal food outside in an open fire, that sort of stuff. So you're prone to burn, more prone to burns. Yeah. Um, and so we got all this experience in burns, which we wouldn't normally have, except for the fact that we had capacity to help those people pay for their health care. Yeah. Absolutely, the, the wealth of knowledge and not that I suppose as medical students, we might have necessarily gotten the experience of that so far, mm. but it's interesting for us to consider what else is possible in our careers. Yeah. Um, and for that reason, another consideration is um, two, twofold. So the finances as well as career progression. How do we reconcile volunteering with those two things, do you think? Um, I think you, you have to recognise that the idea of career progression is ridiculous. 
um, um, because it's not like you get to a certain point and then you're living your life. Yeah. Right. Um, you do have to be careful. Like if you're in the program of selection, then you do have to be careful because some of the selection programs require you to do X amount in the two years prior. So you need to be aware of that if you're heading for a particular thing. Yeah. But there is no question that if you work for a year vaccinating people in sub-Saharan Africa, that that will not reflect well on you when you apply for GP training, for example. Like that will be counted as a medical rotation. Um, it's not the same as going and living on the beach somewhere and, you know, plaiting your hair. It's not that. Um, it's a, it's a, an experience, and, and certainly it's the same was with me, that they, the hospital here in Bendigo, I'd already got a position here when I went overseas and I extended it a couple of times. And they, were, they although that was frustrating for them, they recognised that what I was doing was an important surgical experience um, and that I would be better for having had that experience. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, you can't, you can't get too caught up in doing things the same way as everybody else is doing it. Because as long as you're not wasting your time, as long as you're making decisions that are sensible for you, you've got to, these sorts of experiences, if you come back to training or similar to doing a research degree or anything like that. And then the second part is that whole idea of being progression being not the end. Um, yeah. Who, I know a whole bunch of people who've ended up working overseas for the rest of their lives, um, that that became where they felt that they wanted to be and that was their experience. Right. So it's not that your life ends because you take, it's just that this stream of your life stops if you go somewhere else. It doesn't mean that your life stops. Um, it, yeah. As long as you're doing something that makes sense, it will lead you to different paths and different opportunities. Yeah. And how do you support yourself and your family financially while volunteering? We, we, we have, I mean, we are ridiculously well paid um, compared to even first world countries. Yeah. Um, so if you talk to um, the guy, we met a lot of people from different countries while we were there. But the guys from um, the US, they get paid a quarter of what we get paid as their regular salary. And plus they have fairly extensive debts that they have to pay back regardless of what their income yeah. is. Um, and it's a real, for example, it's a real hurdle for them to go and do volunteer work because they have these debts that they must pay back first. Mm. Um, and, you know, we, my husband and I were flexible enough that we'd both been working. And so we had, um, at that stage, I'd finished surgical training. Um, we had a big house. We'd, you know, been working with double income, no kids for quite a while prior to that. Um, we had money and we would, in Australia, we think about that is the money that you need to have the rest of your life. You need to use that money to buy the next house or to move to the next mm. step, step in the ladder. But what you could also choose to do is go and spend all of that money for working two years um, in Nepal, right? Yeah. And um, it has meant that buying a house when we got back was a bit harder and there's other things that, are, that we, wouldn't, we would have now that we don't have. Yeah. But it's not wasted. Like we've, we sponsor people who are getting education over there, people going through school. And, and you can look at that and say, is, is that less important than buying a fancy house or having, having a car that's uh, the next step up or whatever it is? It's all just insane. And then within a six months of coming back here, you know, it's not like you're starving because as soon as you, you'll get a job. 
because yeah. you're qualified to do something. And as soon as you get a job, you'll get paid well again. And within a, a month or two, you've, you, you're, you're fine. You can live, you can pay rent, you can eat. Um, so, I mean, we even came back and didn't work for two months and it was fine. Like we didn't, you know, um, yeah. we just have this really distorted perception of what earning is and what we should do with our money. Um, that, that what a sacrifice is uh, and, you know, that we need the new things that we need, you know, and I mean, I'm prone to it again, but it, it has that wasting all that money, losing all that money that we built up hasn't really made a big impact on us now. Just yeah. it doesn't seem like that at the time. Yeah. Now, um, during your travel and work in Nepal, you've, you were also writing this blog to keep track yeah. of what you've been doing. And yeah. from there, um, we saw all the lessons that you seem to gain from your experience there. But um, if we talk about that and your own experience, what, what do you think people need in order to be able to do it in terms of skills and mentality, really? In order to go overseas? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I think that it's, it's yeah, I think that the key thing is to not have too many expectations. It's a lot easier to do if you don't want to plan your life out fully. Um, I know people who've worked overseas who ended up having, uh, it was a disaster, it didn't work out, they didn't get a position that they wanted, they were used in an area that they hated and they came home, right? Um, so not, I mean, I had an amazing experience, my husband had an amazing experience and I think that's, and a lot of the people that we met had that experience, but it doesn't mean that's the only experience that you can have. So I think if you try and predict what it's going to be like in advance, it's harder. <clears throat> Yeah. So you do need some financial security. You do need somebody who's supporting you. And we had um, family members at home who were able to help us administratively with our responsibilities in Australia while we're overseas. Um, obviously, the internet makes things a lot easier. Yeah. Um, and so I think flexibility and, uh, you know, not putting hard boundaries about certain things is the most important thing. In terms of skills, it depends on what job you have to be, have to do. Um, there's some places that are easier to work, some places that are harder to work. It doesn't mean that you won't find your place in those places. And then I think the bad experiences that I saw out of other people there was people who felt that they had to, they, they had decided what their life would be. So I worked with somebody who, who decided when they were young in high school, in primary school, that they were going to work overseas and they were going to be a medical missionary. Like that was their plan. When they got there, it didn't live up to their expectations. It didn't mm. suit them, their personality. They had trouble with it. It stressed them out. They felt in really strong responsibility. Um, it was basically a really stressful experience for them. Um, and it took them a long time to accept that and go home um, because they, that, that, that's what they planned. They, that was their calling. That was where they were going to be for the rest of their life. And to then change back and say, actually, maybe not. And I mean, on a lesser degree, we see that all the time. People are going to med school and say, I want to be a pediatric neurologist or whatever. And what they end up doing is completely different to that because they realize that that doesn't fit who they are. That doesn't fit their personality. What they thought it might be is completely different. Um, so like in all things, if you're going to take all the opportunities that come your way, you also have to be able to recognize when those aren't working and try something different. Yeah. Now you're selling us the idea that volunteering is a real possibility that we shouldn't be clamped down by all those things that we think are necessary um, in our, in our career. Um, but I'm also wondering about, were there any challenges to working abroad like that to volunteer? Oh, yeah. And I'll, I'll take a, uh, I'm not actually selling you anything. 
Yes. If, if I had to sell you anything, I would say take the opportunities that come up when they come up and yep. see if they work for you, measure them. If, they, if you like them, then don't get too caught up in this is that there is one right way to do anything. Okay. Yeah. Um, there were obvious challenges. Um, my, my parents are sick um, and my mum had a subarachnoid while I was away. Um, there was, you know, uh, I lost track of a whole bunch of friends that I'd had because um, you just don't keep as close contact on the internet as what you do in person. Um, came back and, you know, my perceptions of how healthcare should work were completely altered by the experience. And so it changed what I was able to do. Certainly, you know, not because of that whole thing about there is a path that you should do and I didn't do that path. Yeah. Um, there, there are some people who uh, don't recognise what I do as valuable or the fact that I'm a generalist as valuable. And if I bang on about it, it's just, you know, it's like um, crying of gulls. They're not really interested in hearing why I think it's important because that's not their experience and what they believe. And it's fine. It's hard to grow beyond those things in your own mind and I realize that some people don't want to hear that stuff and that's fine yeah. now <laughs> but it took me a long time to come come to that um when when people try and advocate a different path and I have to just hold silence and not get too upset about it yeah it would have been hard for you to you know decide that your energy wasn't worth spending on trying to change the minds of those people hmm. uh, and rather that there are people in the audience, for example, who are definitely inspired by this. So your energy is going to the right places. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Now let's move on to some of your late career. So in finishing your volunteering in Nepal, you then came back here and have been practicing rurally. Um, mm -hmm. What's the motivation for, you know, working rural um, and still living there at the moment? So in university, I always wanted to work in a regional or rural area. Um, the, I was in the precursor at a wildfire at that stage. So I was in the Rural Practice Association in, at Monash. Um, and, the, and my idea was that I would be a general practitioner in a regional town um, with the idea that there's a lot more flexibility in working in regional areas. You're not pushed by other people. I mean, that was my perception. It's not entirely true. You are always pushed by what is required in the town that you're living and working in. Um, but it, 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 you're put, not put in a box quite so much um, in regional areas. There's a lot more flexibility and what you can, what mantles you can choose to take up. Um, so that was always something that I was interested in. My husband grew up in a regional town um, in New South Wales. And so he was on board with that. And, um, and I'd had a number of rotations during my surgical training in Bendigo and we'd sort of lined up to come here. Yeah. Um, Bendigo is not a tiny town. It's a big town and it's got private schools and it's got all those sorts of things. Um, and it's really quite close to Melbourne. Um, my husband works in IT now and that was important to him. And so we looked all over Australia, but we were really happy with Bendigo. Since I moved here, um, all of the perceived advantages of living in a regional town, we've just surpassed them. This is so much better than I thought it would be. Um, I really am very flexible in my working hours. I'm, um, you know, I can drop my children at school and then five minutes later be pulling into the car park at work. Um, there's, you know, I work 
in a beautiful town on the border, um, which people go to as a tourist destination. Uh, and I work there two days a fortnight um, and wander around and have coffee and feel like I live there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, those are the opportunities. You know, I don't, I don't have to commute. Um, I mean, I do commute, obviously, to Echuca, but generally I could walk to my work, both my workplaces in Bendigo, um, if, um, if I wasn't sure that I'd be there till late in the evening. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's, you know, people that I work with, uh, I meet at social events, they're the parents at soccer, they're, you know, I meet patients on the street on the street and they're incredibly respectful uh, but they 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 are happy that we're part of their community they're you know there's a real positive attitude towards healthcare in the town you know it's great it's a great place to work yeah now an, another thing that and you'll have to piece together the puzzle for us but another thing that you did as part of your late career was also engage in the phd in yep. surgery. Um, when was this in relation to your return from nepal uh, yeah, no, it was before. Like I did, that. I did my PhD during surgical training. So I had done one year at the Austin and then I, I took time out to do my PhD. And that during my PhD is actually when I had my kids. So um, when it came to sitting my surgical exam and stuff, my kids were um, a part of that to a degree. The, only the eldest has much of a memory of it. Uh, I remember her telling my mum, uh, mum's just in a really bad mood because all she does is study and work right now <laughs> um, but yeah so I'd done I, I did it um, during the midst of training as as part of the surgical stream of uh, sorry the research stream or surgeon scientist stream of uh, during in the college yeah. um, which was an interesting experience because you know I just did what I thought was best at the time but it ends up pushing up against some of the restrictions and regulations of the training program um, yeah. and becoming a lot less uh, simplistic going through the experience. Um, there yeah. was a bit more friction with it. And I guess the idea of um, when you're doing research, full-time research, you're not earning the same salary. So um, yeah. if you're lucky, you've got supportive scholarships, but they're really um, designed at student levels at max. Um, and, and that was quite difficult when we were bringing up young kids and I was, I, I was working at a much lower salary and having maternity leave where I didn't get paid at all. Um, and, you know, but, you know, that's something that you work through as you do that. Yeah. And if I may ask, what was the key driver to wanting to attempt a PhD, um, knowing that you were very much going to be qualified? Oh, it wasn't. So we had this perception that um, full-time research or full-time study is about um, getting into um, programs or bolstering your CV. Um, but there isn't, it's not that, it shouldn't be that. Like what, the reason that you go to university is because you want to expand your horizons as a person. Um, and so the reason I did a, a research degree as opposed to anything else was because I really wanted to do research. I wanted to give back to the scientific community. I wanted to learn that skill. Um, yep. And I thought the best way to do it would be with a PhD rather than doing a little project within registrar training. Um, and so I did it purely for the experience and for, for furthering myself and becoming better at something. And it was a great experience. I got a lot of maturity through the project. Um, the idea of managing a big project that runs over three years, um, having, having that submissions, having to 
to finish it, which is a big thing with these projects is that you do it partway through and then you get back to clinical work and it sort of disintegrates. Um, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a great experience. Yeah, okay. Now, in terms of the last question about your late career and current work, are there, what are the other professional commitments keeping you busy these days? And what can we see you doing over the next few years, Chris? Um, so my main thing at the moment is, is working in two places. I have a fairly busy schedule, uh, actually three places if you count um, Monash Rural Health. Um, and so that, that fills up my day-to-day schedule with on-call and, and those sorts of things. Um, in addition to that, I'm doing a master's of surgical education, which is because education has become a really big part of what I do. And I was never formally trained in education because that's not what we do. Um, and I think there's an increasing um, expectation or reason, there will be an increasing expectation that we should be trained in what we do, that we should, we can't just assume that because we're clever, we can do something well. Um, and it's been a really broadening experience. I've always really enjoyed education. Um, and, you know, thought I was good at it. It's like doing a communication course where you actually learn something. Um, <clears throat> and the education courses taught me stuff that I never would have looked out by myself. Um, and, and I think has made me a better teacher um, yeah. and better able to mentor students um, and better qualified to do what I do um, for a big portion of my week. Um, yeah. Um, oh, excellent. And now um, we had two reflective questions for you before bringing this episode to a close. The first one being, could you tell us about someone who's had a significant influence on your career and what did you learn from them? Uh, I had a number of my mentors going through surgical training. Um, uh, I could speak of many of them, uh, yeah. but there's a, there's a guy I work with here um, who, uh, when I was in a registrar here he used to drive me down to castle main which is nearby and we'd um i'd be his registrar and i'd do some cases there but why were while we're in the car for the 45 minutes there and the 45 minutes back um he would talk about a real variety of things he'd talk about best practice in surgery he'd talk about communication skills he'd talk about um where the college was going with education like all the things that he were interested in he was interested in and we talked together like colleagues basically um, and that experience has um, means I can, he's, he's in some ways a difficult person to deal with like most surgeons, um, but I feel I can ask him lots of different questions about a really broad range of topic. And I, I still go to him for advice in different things because I feel really comfortable in that space. Um, he was very supportive when I had some trouble going through um, my PhD and um, there were a few issues with having children during my PhD and the fact that it, it ended up extending my training time. And um, through all of those troubles and even going overseas and the decision to go overseas, he's been very supportive. And it's really amazing to have people around you that you feel want you to be the best version of you to get the skills that you want. Um, and, and if you find those people, it's great if you can hold on to them um, because they really respect you as a person. They want you to be the best you can be um and and they'll always give you good advice yeah that's very good to hear um you want to stand on the shoulders of those giants who are helping you um and in terms of the last question for today do you have any takeaway lessons for people considering a pathway in surgery or even to the people surrounding um th those people considering surgery I, I i would broaden it i'll say 
I love surgery, but I don't think you should do surgery if it's not something that, that sets you on fire, that it's not something, it's, yeah. it, it shouldn't be, it's the same as saying to, to students choosing whether to go to, for medicine, you shouldn't do it if it's not something that you really want to do. If you want to do it just for the status, it's not worth it. Um, and I'm not sure that surgery has that sort of status, but um, so I would suggest to all people is that um, when you're thinking about what you want to do, don't look at the registrars. They are the people that you have the most access to, but re all registrars jobs, ed registrar jobs in every specialty field are terrible. Um, that's the a mechanic of the, the way we set up healthcare is that the registrars are the most experienced people who we can pay the least. So we get them to do a whole lot of work and they work long hours uh, and they're not very well respected in some senses. Um, and so I think that watching them and deciding what their life is, is a distortion of what the actual job is. Um, what you should really do is look at the people who come out the other end. Your registrar training years can be three years or five years or six years, depending on which program you use. Um, but your life is 40 or 50 years. Yeah. Um, and there's heaps more flexibility once you become a consultant to deciding what you want to do. You can easily work part-time in almost every career. You can... I know, for example, if you look, there's some liver transplant surgeons who have a very small regular clinical load because they know that when a transplant comes up, they will, they will be required to work 24 hours in a row. Mm. Um, and so their actual day-to-day -day requirements are less, but there's no reason why, you, like it is, that's just proof that it is that flexible. Um, yeah. you, you get to choose what you do. The trouble comes that we are, we are people who want to help people um, and the, there is always opportunities to do more. So it is actually tricky to cut down in terms of wanting to be available. It's hard to say no to patients. But apart from that, um, there is, there's lots of capacity to, do, to, to be flexible in your career. So look at the people at the end rather than the people in their training program. And secondly, find whatever it is that lights you up, that makes you excited, that makes you want to tell your friends. That's the thing that you should be pursuing. And whenever you brush up against that sort of subject, spend time with it. Research it in your own time. Uh, take that person out for coffee and ask them all about what they do. Yeah. You know, take the opportunities as they come up and you'll find yourself heading in a direction that you didn't even think of in the first place. Yeah, great words. Now, we are at the end of our conversation today, Chris. I am so grateful for your time and contribution. And on behalf of the whole team and our listeners, we'd like to wish you good luck in your own endeavours. And good luck to all of you. I hope you get all of the success in your future lives. Well, thank you so much. And until next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'd love to hear what you think. So leave us your comments, questions, and thoughts on our Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram pages at the timeout podcast don't forget to subscribe and follow us on spotify and apple music to receive your regular dose of the timeout this episode was brought to you by ganisht aiden chloe and noreen and we'll see you next time <laughs>